Section 30 of The Jolly Parisians and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brandon Weston. Marguerite by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 5. Back from the Grave. My first impulse was to find the custodian of the cemetery and to ask him to have me conducted home, but vague ideas prevented me from following this course. My return would create general alarm. Why should I hurry now that I was the master of the situation? I felt my limbs. I had only an insignificant wound on my left arm, where I had bitten myself, and a slight feverishness lent me unhoped-for strength. Still I lingered. All sorts of troubled visions confused my mind. I had felt beside me in the open grave some sexton's tools which had been left there, and I conceived a sudden wish to repair the damage I had made, to close up the hole through which I had crept, so as to conceal all traces of my resurrection. I do not believe that I had any positive motive in doing so. I only deemed it useless to proclaim my adventure, feeling ashamed to find myself alive when the whole world thought me dead. In half an hour every trace of my escape was obliterated, and then I climbed out of the hole. The night was splendid, and deep silence reigned in the cemetery. The black trees threw motionless shadows over the whiteness of the tombs. When I endeavored to ascertain my bearings, I noticed that one half of the sky was reddened as if lit up by a huge conflagration. Paris was in that direction, and I moved towards it, following a long avenue amid the darkness of the branches. However, after I had gone some fifty yards, I was compelled to stop, feeling faint and weary. I then sat down on a stone bench, and for the first time looked at myself. I was fully attired, with the exception that I had no hat. I blessed my beloved Marguerite for the pious thought which had prompted her to dress me in my best clothes, those which I had worn at our wedding. That remembrance of my wife brought me to my feet again. I longed to see her without delay. At the further end of the avenue I had taken, a wall arrested my progress. However, I climbed to the top of a monument, reached the summit of the wall, and then dropped over the other side. Although rudely shaken by the fall, I managed to walk for a few minutes along a broad, deserted street skirting the cemetery. I had no notion as to where I was, but with the reiteration of monomania, I kept saying to myself that I was going towards Paris, and that I should find the Rue Dauphine somehow or other. Several people passed me, but seized with sudden distrust, I would not stop them and ask my way. I have since realized that I was then in a burning fever, and already nearly delirious. Finally, just as I reached a large thoroughfare, I became giddy and fell heavily upon the pavement. Here there is a blank in my life. For three whole weeks I remained unconscious. When I woke at last I found myself in a strange room. A man who was nursing me told me quietly that he had picked me up one morning on the boulevard Montparnasse and had brought me to his house. He was an old doctor who had given up practicing. When I attempted to thank him, he sharply answered that my case had seemed a curious one and that he had wished to study it. Moreover, during the first few days of my convalescence, he would not allow me to ask a single question, and later on he never put one to me. For eight days longer I remained in bed, feeling very weak, and not even trying to remember, for memory was a weariness and a pain. I felt half ashamed and half afraid. 
As soon as I could leave the house, I would go and find out whatever I wanted to know. Possibly in the delirium of fever a name had escaped me, but the doctor never alluded to anything that I may have said. His charity was not only generous, it was discreet. The summer had come at last, and one warm June morning I was at length permitted to take a short walk. The sun was shining with that joyous brightness which imparts renewed youth to the streets of old Paris. I went along slowly, questioning the passers-by at every crossing I came to, and asking the way to Rue Dauphine. When I reached the street I had some difficulty in recognizing the lodging-house where we had alighted on our arrival in the capital. A childish terror made me hesitate. If I appeared suddenly before Marguerite, the shock might kill her. It might be wiser to begin by revealing myself to our neighbor, Madame Gabin. Still, I shrank from taking a third party into my confidence. I seemed unable to arrive at a resolution, and yet in my innermost heart I felt a great void, like that left by some sacrifice long since consummated. The building looked quite yellow in the sunshine. I had just recognized it by a shabby eating house on the ground floor where we had ordered our meals, having them sent up to us. Then I raised my eyes to the last window of the third floor on the left-hand side, and as I looked at it, a young woman with tumbled hair, wearing a loose dressing gown, appeared and leant her elbows on the sill. A young man followed and imprinted a kiss upon her neck. It was not Marguerite. Still, I felt no surprise. It seemed to me that I had dreamt all this, with other things, too, which I was to learn presently. For a moment I remained in the street, uncertain whether I had better go upstairs and question the lovers who were still laughing in the sunshine. However, I decided to enter the little restaurant below. When I started on my walk, the old doctor had placed a five-franc piece in my hand. No doubt I was changed beyond recognition, for my beard had grown during the brain fever, and my face was wrinkled and haggard. As I took a seat at a small table, I saw Madame Gabin come in, carrying a cup. She wished to buy two sous' worth of coffee. Standing in front of the counter, she began to gossip with the landlady of the establishment. "'Well,' said the latter, so the poor little woman of the third floor has made up her mind at last, eh? How could she help herself? answered Madame Gabin. It was the very best thing for her to do. Monsieur Simoneau showed her so much kindness. You see, he had finished his business in Paris to his satisfaction, for he has inherited a pot of money. Well, he offered to take her away with him to his own part of the country and place her with an aunt of his, who wishes a housekeeper and companion. The landlady laughed archly. I buried my face in a newspaper which I picked off the table. My lips were white and my hands shook. It will all end in marriage, of course, resumed Madame Gabin. But I can swear on my honor that I have never seen anything the least suspicious. The little widow mourned for her husband very properly, and the young man was extremely well behaved. Well, they left last night. Just then the side door of the restaurant, communicating with the passage of the house, opened, and Dede appeared. "'Mother, ain't you coming?' she cried. "'I'm waiting, you know. Do be quick.' "'Presently,' said the old mother testily, "'don't bother.' The girl stood listening to the two women, with the precious shrewdness of a child born and reared amid the streets of Paris. "'When all is said and done,' explained Madame Gabin, "'the dear departed did not come up to Monsieur Simoneau. I didn't fancy him overmuch. He was a puny sort of man, a poor, fretful fellow, and he hadn't a sou to bless himself with. 
No, candidly, he wasn't the kind of husband for a young and healthy wife, whereas Monsieur Simonot is rich, you know, and is strong as a Turk. Oh, yes, interrupted Dede, that's so. Get along with you, screamed the old woman, shoving the girl out of the restaurant. You are always poking your nose where it has no business to be. Then she concluded with these words. Look here, to my mind the other one did quite right to take himself off. It was fine luck for the little woman. When I found myself in the street again, I walked along slowly with trembling limbs. And yet I was not suffering much. I think I smiled once at my shadow in the sun. It was quite true. I was very puny. It had been a queer notion of mine to marry Marguerite. I recalled her weariness at Gironde, her impatience, her dull, monotonous life. The dear creature had been very good to me but I had never been a real lover. She had mourned for me as a sister, for her brother, not otherwise. Why should I again disturb her life? A dead man is not jealous. When I lifted my eyelids, I saw the garden of Luxembourg before me. I entered it and took a seat in the sun, dreaming with a sense of infinite restfulness. The thought of Marguerite stirred me softly. I pictured her in the provinces, beloved, petted and very happy, she had grown handsomer, and she was the mother of three boys and two girls. It was all right. I have behaved like an honest man in dying, and I would not commit the cruel folly of coming to life again. Since then I have traveled a good deal. I have been a little bit everywhere. I am an ordinary man who has toiled and eaten like anybody else. Death no longer frightens me, but it does not seem to care for me now that I have no motive in living and I sometimes fear that I have been forgotten upon earth. End of section 30